This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? dramatic or like, sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R102.7 FM. Welcome, welcome. Welcome to Green in the Apocalypse, Triple R's weekly foray into all manner of things gloomy and gleeful, doomy and dreamful. How was that? I enjoyed the rhyming. Thanks. Yes, you managed to channel Bushy quite well there. (laughs) As Kate has pointed out, we are, or has inferred, we're bushless tonight. But I'm here, Adam Grubb. (laughs) We've got the grubs, but no bushes. Yeah. What will the grubs feed from? (laughs) Wow, that's a difficult metaphor to unravel. <laughs> I have to auto cannibalize. Um, anyway, joining me tonight, who you can hear, uh, the uncommonly comely community commons coordinator. Ooh. Ooh. Sorry to refer to your good looks rather than your intellect, but hey, it rhymed. Um, Kate Dundas. Hello. How do you do this evening? Yeah, very well. I was, I was quite into the, the theme tune there. Do, 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 do. Yeah, it's quite catchy, right. isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'd, you know, I'd hope it had sort of sunk in after <laughs> 103, Three. 103 shows. 103 shows. Mm. Um, and that voice there was uh, the person behind the controls, the fabulous flight, con- flight controller, Jed McCartney. How are you, Jed? Very good, Adam. How are you? Hello, Kate. Hello, oh. Jed. Well, tonight, we're going to go to a pre-record soon. So, um, sit back and relax, my co-travellers. <laughs> We're going to be talking all things mushrooms tonight, and a bit later in the show, we're going to hear from Milkwood's Nick Rittar. He's a local mushroom grower and educator. He's going to tell us how we can do it ourselves. But first, we're going to hear from Chido Guevara. Now, Chido is a 31-year-old Zimbabwean farmer, activist, educator, and founder of the Future of Hope Foundation, a group that is committed to ending poverty, abuse, and victimhood at the grassroots level in Africa through food security. Her background is one of the toughest childhoods imaginable, one that saw her orphaned at the age of seven with her remaining relatives offering more abuse than support uh, while she was responsible for feeding her own malnourished little brother and her blind grandmother. This isn't the her stuff. Her blind grandmother. Yeah. Oh, who, God. Like just unfathomable by our standards conditions and her road out of this situation, the fact that she's come to do all this stuff, came from the unlikely path of learning how to cultivate mushrooms, and she teaches that to people around the world. She's going to tell us all about this. Um, Sarah and I spoke to her a couple of weeks ago before she was uh, to speak at a gathering organised by the School of Life Melbourne, and Sarah started by asking her a little bit about her childhood 
Well, um, I found myself uh, living as an orphan in Zimbabwe at the age of seven, and I had to be responsible for my grandmother, who was too old to take care of herself or myself. And uh, I had a brother who was two years my junior, and so yeah, every day uh, suddenly became a constant uh, struggle to put food on the table, and uh, I had to get out of school when I was nine so I could focus on uh, trying to find food, uh, and. Normally, then I would also get married when I was ten because that was the only way I could actually get a man to put food on my plate. But uh, luckily, I survived. I did not marry the guy, and then at eleven years old, that's when I learned to farm mushrooms. <laughs> and at, at this time, um, reading your your autobiography, "The Future of Hope: Message from an Orphan to a World in Crisis," it seems you. We use it as a, a phrase here to mean working for not much at all, but you were working literally for peanuts. I was working for... Uh, <laughs> sometimes I would have to dig a big piece of land just to get a, a ball of maize meal. And, uh, like, um, I, I always laugh with my girls when I tell them a story about how I had to dig a very big piece of land just to get flip-flops, which were, like, 50 cents or something. And then I wore them once, and then they were flat, and my feet were already touching the ground. Oh. <laughs> so it was, it was indeed working for nothing, but... But you have to understand that in a community where everybody is, pure, is poor, mm. even the people that you're working for, they also have to go and work somewhere else for them to get food. So it was really a, mm. a complicated situation where, yes, it was literally working for nothing. Mm. Um, you mentioned that you, you refused your first marriage proposal. What... Um, just quickly, what were the circumstances of that one? <laughs> My mom was born in a in a big family. She was one of fifteen uh, children, uh, which comprised ten girls and five boys, and so that meant that all the children, uh, like uh, my. I had many cousin sisters, and it was one of the cousin sisters who came to me. I, she was very blunt about it, and you can see that she was really concerned about what was going on with me. And she said, "Chido, we see that you're struggling, and uh, we we want to help." So she says, "Well, my husband has a friend. Mm -hmm. the The guy is like forty years old." And he has been struggling to get a wife. And she really put it like that. He's been struggling to get a wife. And so we think that if you marry this guy, that might be your escape. And she told me he's going to come on Thursday. He will be driving a blue car. He will drive past here and then turn around. And you go and wait for him at that corner. And I found myself thinking, if I agree and I get married and I go, I don't go with my grandmother, I don't go with my brother, and I felt such huge responsibility over them, and it, it was not in my interest to just get out of there and leave them there, because I knew that without me they also wouldn't be able to manage. So having given it a thorough thought, I thought to myself, look, I am not going to get married. I'm going to stick around here and be with my grandmother. Because also my grandmother was one of my best friends. I always say that my mom gave birth to me, but my grandmother gave me life because she did what she could with the little uh, resources and abilities that she had to make sure that when 
My abusers would threaten to send me out of the homestead. My grandmother would pack everything that belonged to her, all her clay pots and all her broken things, and say, if Chido cannot stay here, I am also living. So she was really, really the person who gave me life. Yeah. And, 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 and the courage to keep uh, fighting even when things were so hard. And you were, you were how old at the time of that marriage proposal? Ten. Uh, and, and you mentioned that it wasn't just that um, it would give you a chance to work outside that it offered, but that at home um, there was abuses from your uncle as well. Sure. Yeah. So that must have been very hard to turn down. And it, it was hard, but the thing is, I think, you know, often people ask me what made you, what gave you the courage to keep going in a situation like that. But um, one of the things that uh, were very important in shaping how I uh, dealt with the situation was that my mom uh, uh, died from HIV and AIDS. But before that, she had had to put us up with different members of the extended family when she was off getting medication. And so already from that time when she was still alive, things were happening to me. Mm. And uh, I remember the last time I saw her coming to fetch us from the uh, one of the extended family members, I saw her from a distance, of course, because you had to walk. I saw her from a distance. I thought, that is my mom and she's coming. I'm going to tell her everything about what they were doing to me when she was gone. But she got close and I looked at her and my mom was not my mom. And I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to wait a little bit until she's a bit better. And that's when I will talk to her. So we went to my grandmother's place and we stayed there. And she was in one uh, uh, round hut uh, of my grandmother getting sick there. And I was laying in a tent outside also sick, but still waiting. And the situation continued to deteriorate. So eventually she passed away. And when she passed away, I was so angry. I felt let down by my mom. And so there was a bit, something about me, which wanted to show my mom that it doesn't matter what you were going through, you should have held on for me. And so there was also part of that. It was the, the stubborn side of myself, I guess, that um, I didn't want to give up on my brother. I didn't want to leave him alone, just like my mom had left us alone. So it was there was part of it which is starting from this anger I had towards my mom having given up on me. But of course, now that is a different story altogether. I adore my mom. <laughs> so after that, at, so you left school <coughs> so that you could get food for your grandmother and your brother. Mm-hmm. And then how did the mushroom thing happen? <laughs> when I, um, well, you, want, you have to also know that in every community in many parts of Africa, there's always a group from church or just a community group. Or they call them home-based care people, and they keep record of all the orphans in the community. And uh, the reason why they do that is that sometimes there's a donation of food or clothing or whatever, then they want to be able to know how to distribute that. So they have a record of, oh, we have X amount of orphans, we have uh, X amount of uh, uh, old people, and when there's some uh, donations and they distribute that. And not far away from where I lived was one of those women. Her name was Lavness Zangeni. And um, she was aware of all those things that were happening uh, 
in my family and um, one Sunday when she was coming from church she came past my house and she said look when we were at church they said that there was an invitation from Africa University which was a United Methodist based uh, university and so the message came through the church so they sent an invitation to have 15 young girl orphans trained in mushroom farming and we think since you are in this situation it might be be good for you to try it. That was the first step. So I said, of course, I want to try it because I wanted to be able to learn something. When I left school, it was not because I didn't want to go to school. I wanted to, but I had too many responsibilities to balance that. So I was so keen on any opportunity to learn something that would come up. But then for this one, I was even more keen because well, I learned that the mushrooms, you can actually eat them. And I've eaten mushrooms with my grandmother. So I was like, definitely, I want to go. But then, of course, we got stuck with the same thing. So, okay, if you want to go, that's good. Now I have to speak with your uncle because he's like the head of the family. He may not be the one who brings food on my table, but he is the head of that homestead because he is a man. And, um, and even though my grandmother is his mother, she doesn't count because she's not a man. Mm-hmm. And so um, he, uh, Loveness was going to my uncle and talking with him. And, of course, he was worried to say, well, if she goes, who is going to take care of her grandmother? And, uh, you know, she had to say, oh, but the training is just for one week. And, and, and then what if she doesn't come back? And Loveness had to explain, oh, no, 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 I will make sure that she comes back. I will bring her back myself. She will not go anywhere. And then because, uh, you know, a girl child is also like, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bank in, in, in this kind of uh, um, uh, villages. You are a bank, so and especially because the whereabouts of my father were unknown. And, and also my mom was not fully married. And I was the only thing that they were holding on to because then they can say to my father, oh, you did not marry our sister. So when your girl gets married, we get to be paid. So it was a little bit that kind of game, which is very very silly when i sit here and think about it today but that was the reality mm-hmm. and so with some luck loveness was successful so i went to the training and i remember that clearly i went barefoot i had big eyes very shy and so um during that training there was food and it, it was it was just like a dream. But um, there was also one very important thing for me that each time they asked me what I wished for, I always say, I want to have a father. For me, having a father had become so important as getting food because when my abusers would do things to me and then they told me, if you mention this to anyone... I am going to send you out of the homestead and you go to look for your father because I was on my mother's side of the family. And so... And this was a threat because he had he'd left you at some point, so... Actually, yeah. my father had already died before my mom died. This is what I now know. Yeah. And it was also a little bit of a very complex story. Mm. I mean, <laughs> you had to pay your own uncle to take care of your grandmother, his mother. Oh, yes. So, so that's... Uh, that was much later. So the first training was one week, so I went to that. But when we came back, we grew some mushrooms. We were able to sell some mushrooms. And that. I had some food. But out of the group of 15 girls, very quickly after the training, 
You know, we were back in the community doing something that no one else was doing. And all the nice boys that we used to look at and think, hmm, these boys, suddenly they see us. And a lot of the girls then got married. In less than six months after the training, they got married. And there was only two girls out of 15 who were left unmarried. I was one of them. And so when the university got the news, they quickly organized together with the Zeri Foundation to take the few girls who were not married and bring them to the university so they can continue. And for me, it was very clear. I did not want to get married. I wanted to continue to learn about mushrooms to make it simple so I can teach this to many other people who were in a similar situation to myself. When we went to the university, um, my mentor then then called uh, Gunter Pauli, who was the founder of the Zeri Foundation, which initiated the whole program, and says, Gunter, we have here two girls, and one of the girls has mushroom fingers. She doesn't <laughs> want to get married, but she needs a father. And uh, 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 Gunter says, and so... And then my mentor said, boy, you are the father. And so he's like, oh, okay. <laughs> and uh, he came to Zimbabwe and we met. And then he became my father and, and he's a very good friend. Yeah. And uh, so when I was at the university, then, of course, I when when my mentor had to take me from the village to the university, that was also the big question to say, well, of course, first she was gone for a week, and now you want her to go, uh, to go, go. <laughs> like, um, so my mentor then had to negotiate with my uncle because he asked his usual questions. If she goes, who's going to take care of her grandmother? But my grandmother was his mom. And then, of course, there was my brother. Who's going to take care of her brother when she's gone? And uh, my mentor then had to say, look, can we not make some kind of a plan i mean can we not come up with something this this um, what if she gets married and and why don't we make a plan he said okay she will pay me two thousand five hundred dollars i will never forget that and and then he made it very explicitly that that two thousand five hundred dollars was to take care of my grandmother and my brother but when I come to pay that money, I have to bring it in cash and hand it to him in cash. So I could not say, oh, here is a receipt. I bought the maize meal. I bought them oil and soap. No, I had to buy those things that were separate and I had to give him uh, money. And uh, it took me a couple of years to get that done. As a result, I worked at the university for around three and a half years. And after that, then I went back to school when I was around 16, six and a half, uh, something like that. And uh, when I went back to school, um, I was a girl who had just done like five years of primary school. When I went back to school, I had to go to high school. So this is like grade eight, grade eight, grade nine, something like that. And um, I, I was going to school and I continued with my mushroom production and everything. But at the back of my mind, I knew I'm not going back to school because I want to find what I want to do. I'm not going to school because I don't know, you know, like, 
I knew exactly what I wanted to do my, with my life then. Yeah. I wanted to work with other young orphans, and I had the skill which I strongly believed that I could use to help them. That was Chido Guevara, who is the Zimbabwean orphan-turned uh, mushroom-growing enthusiast and teacher. That was just the first half of our interview. You're on Green in the Apocalypse on 3RRR. As we head back, she's going to tell us about what she, what she finds so fascinating about mushrooms. What, so, what is it about mushrooms that interests you, it continues to interest you? Obviously, <laughs> it, it was your personal journey involved them but there are several things that interest me about mushrooms of course it's basic that mushrooms are delicious and we are culture that 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 always ate mushrooms because even though my grandmother was very very old she used to take me into the forest i used to go with her into the forest sit her under a tree and i gather different kinds of mushrooms and bring her and bring them to her and she just by breaking a mushroom and smelling it she could tell me this mushroom is edible. This mushroom is inedible, but not poisonous. This one is semi-poisonous. But if we take this poisonous mushroom, we bring it home, we cook the mushroom, we dry it, and we cook again later and eat it, it will be fine. Mm. So she had such knowledge about mushrooms. But she also told really funny things. I, I look back now and I laugh about it. She said... When you harvest a mushroom, and she, she would show you different kinds of mushrooms, how should you harvest it in such a way that the gods of the forest can give you more mushrooms next year? If you harvest a mushroom that produces spores, how do you cook that mushroom in such a way that the gods of the forest don't think that you're greedy and they can give you mushrooms in the next season? Mm-hmm. And when I learned about mushrooms the first time, I'm like, this is exactly what my grandmother was talking about. She would say, a mushroom that produces spores, when you cook it, keep the pot open. Of course, as it's starting to, to cook, the, 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 the gills are opening, the cap is opening, and some spores are released. And of course, when you have a pot open, some of them will be able to escape before they are cooked. If you're cooking inside the house, keep the door open, she would say. So all <laughs> those kinds of things. So we are a culture that is eating mushrooms. Yeah. So that, this is just very basic things. But yeah. the most important things are that in a lot of the poor communities, like the community that I, the community that I grew up in, mm. a lot of the poor people there are trying to farm. Mm. They try to grow corn. They try to grow sorghum. They try to grow coffee in some of the areas. They try to grow cotton and, and even tobacco and tea, all those things. And all that agrobiomass can be converted into mushrooms in a much shorter span of time than you can use them to make compost to fertilize the land so you can grow something again. Mm. But not only that. So, how much time does it take to make a compost? Uh, what are we talking, a meter cubed? I've, <laughs> I've spent days on compost. So, <laughs> so say that corn cobs, if you're to convert yeah. corn cobs into compost, yeah. you're talking about nothing less than two months. Right. Oh, to finish it, yes. Yeah, yes. until it's ready to be used. Yeah. Now, when you have compost, you have to put it on the land. You have to have water. Mm. You have to have the seeds to put in the land. And you have to put that there and wait. Mm-hmm. So let's say from the time you make a com- you start with the corn cobs to the time you actually eat a vegetable, it's not less than six to eight months. Mm. In that span of time, you take two to three weeks 
with the same corn cobs, mm -hmm. you have mushrooms growing. And what can you do with the mushrooms? You can eat them. If you say, oh, but I have a bad relationship with mushrooms, I can't eat them. There is a market for mushrooms. You can sell them. When you sell them, you buy then what you can eat. When you sell them, you then can buy seeds. And with the spend, which is the leftovers after you grow mushrooms, you can put that in the ground and fertilize the land. So with the money you buy the seeds, with the spend, you can fertilize the land. Then you can grow other things. And currently, we are advancing with what we're calling the mushroom-based integrated food production system. You grow mushrooms on waste, you use waste to fertilize the land, you grow vegetables, you can use part of the waste to grow earthworms, you can feed chickens. And we are lucky to have now a network with people who are working on interesting projects on chickens, for example. We're working with an, a Belgian artist who's been crossbreeding chickens for art, and right now he's got the biggest genetic bank for chickens in the world. Wow. And we are, we are growing, producing what we call the planetary community chicken. We're introducing that to Zimbabwe. It's already being introduced to Ethiopia. It's already being in introduced to Detroit, to New Siberia. Of course, it's already in Belgium. And he has achieved this by crossbreeding different kinds of chickens from different parts of the world. Not only I'm that... I'm not sure where the art comes into it. That could get weird. What? <laughs> but anyway, let's move on. Um, it's Belgium. So, so now all these things that you've learned, which aren't just around mushroom growing, but yeah. broader sustainability, you, you find... Um, Youth that are much in need, like you once were, uh, orphans and other other people, and share this knowledge. Tell us about your programs. So our programs are that uh, I, I go to different communities around Zimbabwe. I select young orphan girls. I start with girls because anything to do with food in my culture, girls are the ones who are always in front. But then when there's no food. They're also the ones that suffer the most. How do they suffer the most? You have some successful guys who have access to food and they want to exchange sex for a plate of food which costs maybe a dollar or even 50 cents sometimes. So girls are in a much, much disadvantaged situation when there is a lack of food. So what do we do? We also understand that a lot of the times young orphans have no access to land. Because when their parents are dying, the land is distributed or maybe the parents didn't even own land. And so we pair them with grown women in the communities, just like I was with Loveness. Mm -hmm. Loveness was a grown woman with a home of her own, with her fields of her own, and she was known in the community and respected in the community. So we identify those women who then come to the training with the girls. So we have the young orphan girls, we have the mentors. They come, we spend two weeks with them, uh, training them from food production, from just the basics of how, how do you take care of yourself? How do you communicate? And, and then, of course, when you have a product, how do you go to the market? And so now... Since two years, we have a customized center where we are carrying out these trainings. And that means that because we have a customized center, when we teach them to grow mushrooms, it is a practical thing. They go, they see a mushroom house, they harvest a mushroom, they use the spent substrate on the garden, they dig the soil to see how it has changed since it has been, uh, um, uh, since mushroom spent has been added to it and all those things. They go to the chicken coop, they see the chickens, they harvest mushrooms. They bring them to the market, they cook with the mushrooms, they cook with the vegetables from the garden, and then they get the whole experience of, of okay from the communities where we come from. We have 
land which is depleted. This is how we can rebuild it. We struggle today because we've been using too many chemicals on the land. It's not productive anymore. How can we do it without all these pesticides? How can we do it without uh, artificial fertilizers and things like that? So they learn all of that, that when they are leaving, they don't have just a theory of this is how you do it, uh, like normal school but they have the experience and I think a lot of them also knowing that they have not been that much to school or if they were, they were not present enough that they did not learn that much and the best way for them to learn is from their hands and then translating that into theory and so after that we send them back to their communities with a starter kit. We provide follow-up from the beginning of the production to the time when they are harvesting, we go with them to the market. I'm currently working to set up a separate entity that helps them with the whole process of getting to market because we find that a lot of the work that has been done to help these underprivileged people has always had a problem that you teach them to grow tomatoes and then what? They have not what it takes to go and negotiate a market which is also very highly competitive. In my country, we're an agriculture country. In agriculture, when it comes to going to the market, most of the times it's the men who are there. Now, this is a young girl who has not that much confidence and, 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 and they are very shy and, and they don't know how to play the game. And we have been learning this over the years. And so we are setting up an entity, we call it Hop Food. It has not been officially launched, but uh, it's, it's, uh, we're working on that. And Hop Food then guarantees that whatever the women are going to produce, Hop Food will take it, will buy it from the women. But beyond that, of course, we don't want just to say, oh, there's an entity which will buy it from the women and then what? But this is also a way we are very grateful for collaborations that we have with people from MAD, for example, which is actually how I met Rebecca, who organized this whole trip. Uh, MAD is an organization, uh, a Danish organization, which organized uh, when Norma Restaurant had a pop-up uh, in Sydney. At the end of their stay in Sydney, there was this uh, symposium which was put together, and that's where I met Rebecca. But th these people from MAD have been helping us to say, look, how can you look beyond production? How can you look into processing? So we've already had a group of those people coming to Zimbabwe and working, starting with the local ingredients, the things that are native to Zimbabwe to say, what can you make with uh, monkey apples, for example? Um, and, and building up that excitement, but also uh, an understanding to say, okay, if you grow something and you can't bring it to the market now, you can preserve it. You can uh, process and preserve this and bring it to the market later. So Hope Food is going to bring this into the work that we're doing with the women to make sure that we don't also get Hope Food uh, getting choked with all this produce where they have nothing to do with. Yeah. And so we, we're building collaborations that will help us to go further than just production. Um, when you were in California, some people said to you, oh, we can help you to stay here. Like, Yes. And you're like, no, I want to go back to Zimbabwe. That's where... It so that uh, that is very true. I, I mean, if you know the story, the history of Zimbabwe is that a lot of our young people and a, a lot of our professionals have had to leave the country because things are not going well. Yeah. But if we all leave, then who's going to fix things? And that's also one of the important things about the relationship between my adopted father and myself. 
I am not Belgian. I am not Chiro Pauli. I am Chiro Guevara. I live and do my work in Zimbabwe. And this is something very, very special between us because he was not the person who says, okay, now you become my daughter. Here you're going to go to Belgium. You're going to stay there. You're going to go to school there. We had an understanding where I didn't have to suffer identity crisis, for example. I was in my space doing what I am passionate about. And as a parent, he created an enabling environment, the exposures that I needed to learn and grow in what I really wanted to do. And today, I try to do exactly the same, starting in Zimbabwe, but building a model which we can spread around Africa and in any part of the world where it may be relevant. I think there's um, probably a lot we could learn from you here as well. And I hope that there are... (laughs) You're travelling with... um, uh, some you, you, you're doing mentoring yourself, and I sure. hope that you are um, producing many more Cheetos. <laughs> well, I'm actually travelling with two of mini Cheetos. My <laughs> hope is that um, out of the young girls that I train, some of them will grow to become the persons who will drive the future of Hope Forward long after I am gone. So that's why when we organized this trip to Australia, we said, okay, we have to take a few of them with so they get an experience of what it is exactly that is going on and how do you carry something like this. And uh, again, we are about providing exposure to what else people can do. And it's through this exposure that you can build an excitement, an appetite, a hope for wanting to be more, for wanting to have a purposeful life. Yeah. You're well. like a mushroom, like <laughs> <laughs> inoculating people. Sure. <laughs> with hopeful ideas. Well, it has been an incredible pleasure, Chido. And thanks for coming to Australia to tell your story and for coming on Greening the Apocalypse. Thank you very much. That was Chido Guevara, the um, Zimbabwean mushroom educator. Now, if you want to know more about Chido's work, you can check out thefutureofhope.org. And uh, she was in town a couple of weeks ago where she was talking to the School of Life in Melbourne. Now, if you want to learn more about how to grow mushrooms, hang around because after the break, we're going to talk to Nick Ritter from Milkwood. He is an avid mushroom grower. You are listening to a triple R podcast. And you're listening to Green in the Apocalypse on 3 Triple R. And we have Nick Rittar on the phone. Nick, are you there? Hi, Kate. How are you? Very well. Thank you for joining us. So, Nick is one half of Milkwood, which is an educational business teaching all sorts of skills and growing and designing and living like it matters. And also an avid mushroom grower forager. And you're joining us from Hepburn Springs tonight. So we've just heard from Chido Guevara, who talked to us about the magical world of mushrooms. And it would be great to hear a bit from you, Nick, about can you grow mushrooms at home? Is it easy? Yeah, well, it's like all things, you know, the more you do it, the better you get at it. And um, if somebody asked you, is growing vegetables easy, then you'd probably say, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's it's definitely something that everybody could do with a little bit of persistence. Do you need a garden or can you just shove them in a drawer? can be anywhere uh, where you can control the humidity, basically, so or at least in a humid environment. So under the stairs, maybe, under the deck, um, in a basement. You can grow them in a cupboard. Or will, will you grow mushrooms like out of your wall if you have things that humid, though? 
That could be bad. <laughs> well, exactly. So you, you're going to want to um, have some kind of area where you can seal it off. Um, so typically uh, people build a, a small sort of fruiting chamber out of plastic. It's a little bit, you mm. know, like uh, in Dexter. Um, where you wrap the walls up with plastic to fix all of it. Uh, <laughs> a little bit of murderous mushroom visualisation there. <laughs> yeah, that's one way of doing it. Or I, I, I built myself a, a fruiting chamber out of old um, glass shower screens uh, just from the tip shop. Um, cost me $10 and it works great. So a fruiting chamber is somewhere where you can isolate the mushrooms inside and keep control of the temperature. Not so much temp. Well, temperature in in professional systems they do control the temperature, but at home we kind of use um, we try to fruit the things that are fruiting at the time of year um, that's appropriate for that temperature. So, uh, for instance, right now I'm I'm fruiting king oyster mushrooms and pearl oyster mushrooms and some shiitake. Um, in the middle of summer I do pink oyster mushrooms and golden oyster mushrooms, and in the middle of winter I can do enokitake. So you can pretty much grow any type of all those fancy mushrooms that cost loads of money in the shops? Yeah, all the ones that you see in, an, in a normal shop, um, you can grow them at home. Um, the only ones you can't grow are the ones that need to have that relationship with trees. So things like saffron milk caps or porcinis, you know, they require um, you to have the forest. If you've got the forest, you can grow them as well, but uh, most of us don't have a spare pine forest. Can you grow magic mushrooms? You can. Um, it's pretty much the same process as, as the edible ones. Um, they're all pretty similar. Yeah. Of course, though, it is highly illegal. Yes, people do not grow magic mushrooms. It's highly illegal. <laughs> <laughs> so you talked about saffron milk caps, and I've been perusing Instagram and seeing many people with their baskets full of saffron milk caps. Have you been out in the forests foraging? Yeah. They're one of the easiest ones to identify and, and really uh, relatively safe mushroom to, to forage um, because it's easy to work out you know, whether you've got a separate milk cap or not. So I highly recommend those at the moment. They're, they're everywhere across Victoria. There's loads of them. Um, and as long as you know exactly what you're looking for, then they're pretty easy to identify. So how would you identify one? Well, first thing you do is look at a lot of photos. Um, so just get onto Google Images and search saffron milk cap. The proper name for them... Um, uh, is lactosis, lactarius, which is milk, and deliciosis, which you can guess what that means. Delicious milk. Yeah, delicious milky mushroom. <laughs> very, very oh, good. What are those other slippy ones? Slippery. S- slippery jacks. Mm. Um, they're they're fantastic as well. Um, they, they, there's a couple of species that people commonly refer to as slippery jacks. Jacks. Um, so that's uh, Suius um, lutus or luteus is the slippery jack. But then there's another one which is sometimes called the weeping belete, uh, which looks almost almost exactly the same. It's edible too, although sometimes it can give some people a little bit of indigestion. Um, so that's Suius granulata, and they're almost the same. Um, if it's got a little ring around the the stem or the stud. Um, then that's a slippery jack. If it hasn't got the little ring around the start, then it's um, the, the weeping belate. And just the weeping belate, with all mushrooms, especially ones that you forage, you should cook them really well. Yeah. Um, and with that weeping belate, it's good to take the gills and the, the, the cap, the skin off the cap as well. Just makes it a bit more digestible. Um, it's a bit slimy too. Yeah, I remember Adam going to... What's that one with all the pine trees? Mount Franklin, mm. is it? And getting slippery jacks and then attempting to cook them. And I don't think I cooked them very well. They were really slimy. 
there, it's an acquired there taste. something that, yeah, it's one of those things that, you know, if you haven't tried them before, they can be a bit strange. But once you get used to them, uh, yum. I mean, you want you want to really make the most of them. Um, you know, do them in a batter and and, and deep fry them. But uh, you can do that just about anything, can't you? <laughs> yes. So, so going back to growing at home. So you mentioned you've all you need is somewhere that you can control the humidity, which could even be inside. What? But what are you growing them on? Um, good question, Adam. Uh, the the normal most most of the mushrooms that you grow at home, you're going to be growing on some kind of um, high carbon waste material. So you know, usually an agricultural waste material like straw or, or rice hulls or sawdust or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you can grow them on cardboard and you can grow them on toilet rolls and you can grow them on uh, coffee grounds and all kinds of things. Um, but uh, usually you're looking for something that hasn't got too much nutritional value so that other microorganisms can't eat it. Mm-hmm. Um, fungi are these amazing organisms that can break down really, really tough, hard to hard to break down food like you know wood chips or or straight up logs. Um, not much can eat a log, uh, but fungi can. So we use that to our advantage, and generally we use those things that nothing else can eat, and that way we don't get any kind of other molds or bacteria or anything growing on that substrate. And what do they? What you don't plant it, do you? It's like a spore or something. Uh, well, fungi, as in what we know as mushrooms, that's just the fruit of, of the organism. The organism is a, is a big web of mycelium, which is, is like little strands of super fine, wispy white fur that is growing through the soil or growing through a log or growing through leaves. And when the conditions are right, it forms a mushroom in order to spread its spores. So in that state of the fluffy white mycelium, you can chop it up into lots of little pieces and use that to create new versions of itself. It's like Mickey Mouse in Fantasia, chopping up the broomsticks. So it's really easy to multiply mycelium once you've got some of that. So usually we start with some mycelium and people call that stuff spawn. And it's just a name for some mycelium that's in a, in a state that's easy to break up to inoculate some other substrate material. So you, buy, you can buy spawn just off the internet. This, um, you can get S-P-A-W-N spawn of you know, shiitake mushrooms or oyster mushrooms or uh, lion's mane mushrooms or reishi mushrooms, the, the fantastic um, uh, medicinal mushrooms like turkey tail or all kinds of different things, about 40 different species that you can get. Sounds like a gastronomic adventure. Hey, Nick, we better um, say goodbye to you, but uh, well, I mentioned that if people want to find out about your courses, although I think even though you're locally based now, the mushroom courses you're running are currently all in Sydney, is that right? Yeah, we haven't scheduled the next one down here. We will probably in the next few weeks. Um, we run them at Hepburn, um, okay. just at the primary school, just outside of Dalesford, and um, we will definitely have one of those happening in springtime. Beautiful. And so people can find out about that at milkwood.net, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Thanks so much for your time, Nick. Let's have you back sometime. Yeah, I'd love to. Thanks, Adam. Excellent. Thank you. You're on Greeting the Apocalypse on 3RRR as we commence the wrap-up Sands Bushy tonight. Uh, I'd like to thank the School of Life Melbourne for chaperoning Cheeto Guevara to our studios a couple of weeks ago. Um, you've missed her talk with them, but you can find out about many of their other talks, courses and workshops and upcoming events at theschooloflife.com slash Melbourne, some of which have titles like The Serious Business of Playfulness, How Necessary is a Relationship and The Art of Arguing Well. Mm. We could probably 
Thanks. Oh, and we should, we should as, a, as a show, go to that one. Well, thanks for doing all the panelling as always, Jed. No problems. Thank you, Kate, for coming in. Thank you. We've been greeting the apocalypse and uh, we'll see you next Tuesday. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.